Australia's Climate Policy and COP26. Secretary General of the UN and others have described this as the last opportunity to prevent very serious climate warming that would cause huge disruptions globally. Record $450 million heroin seizure. And therefore, I really agree with you that what success looks like and the kind of metrics that police are held accountable to is perhaps something that we need to reframe or rethink. And a Facebook blackout. But without a means to access the network online, the engineers had to turn up in person at the data centres, which, quite rightly, are guarded with high physical security. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This Sunday, the 31st of October, the COP26 summit kicks off in Glasgow, where it's expected that leaders will bring bigger commitments to emissions reductions and bolder climate targets. Dr Robert Glasser and Anastasia Capetis discuss Australia's climate commitments going into COP and whether they are sufficient to address climate impacts in Australia and our region. Hello, Anastasia. Hello, Robert. Um, Great to be here and to chat to you about what promises to be a very historic two-week period in terms of climate change and global action. It certainly is. The Secretary General of the UN and others have described this as the last opportunity to prevent very serious climate warming that would cause huge disruptions globally. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because in Australia, the debate has really been about the net zero 2050 pledge. And yet really internationally, the debate has moved on from that. That seems to be the sort of the minimum commitment, the sort of get into the meeting card. And then really what we need to do is is much beyond that. Yeah, I think actually even a year ago, people were still pushing hard on the net zero by 2050. But so many wealthy countries, including Australia, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a minute, have now committed to net zero. But even with the existing commitments, the analysis suggests that the climate is going to blow past, the warming will blow past the 1.5 degree lower target of the Paris Agreement and pass the upper limit, two degrees, on really cutting pretty close to three degrees of warming, which would be catastrophic. So the focus of this meeting has been how much more ambitious can countries make their 2030 commitments? Yes, and we'll just briefly touch on the G20 because that's just happening before COP. And I just would like to draw attention, earlier in the year there was a report called the Paris Equity Check, and it was a scientific report that basically looked at G20 country pledges. At the time, Australia hadn't signed up to net zero 2050, but it pointed out that given the current policies of China, Brazil, Russia and Australia, those policies, if the world followed them, would take us way past three degrees into the five or six degree territory. And then you're looking at potential catastrophic feedback that then takes temperatures even further. Do you think also that India should be included in that group as well? Well, I think one of the certainly US objectives in at the G20 is going to be really trying to do what they can to encourage India to sign up to a net zero commitment. It might not be 2050, but India is such a huge player on the climate scene, one of the largest emitters and with the economy growing rapidly, that that's a really key piece of the puzzle. But yes, it remains to be seen. Modi's attending the meeting in person, so that's a good sign. That would suggest mm-hmm. he's lined up some interesting announcements and we'll have to see what he says. 
Do you think it's likely to be a sort of a 2060, which is something that China has put a benchmark there? Indonesia also, I think, has a 2060 target, a very unambitious one, but nonetheless, that seems to be the number. Yeah, I think that's possible. You know, it's very hard to say. So the, the target, the 2030 target, is clearly going to be the key at this meeting. If we focus on Australia's contribution to that, well, our Prime Minister just yesterday formally announced that Australia is going to go to Glasgow with a net zero by 2050 commitment. But sadly, on the 2030 commitment issue, Scott Morrison said, number one, that he would expect that the outcome will be 30 to 35 percent reduction. It's currently our national determined contribution says Mm -hmm. currently 26 to 28 percent. So he said that he expects the modeling and everything suggests that it'll be more like 35 percent, which would be an improvement. But he then turned around and said, but we're going to stick with our existing Paris commitment of 26 to 28%. So that was a bit disappointing. So Robert, just as a point of comparison, what sort of 2030 targets have other countries been putting forward? So for example, the UK, the US? Many of our closest allies have improved, have increased their commitments from the sort of 20s and 30s to 50% reduction of emissions by 2030 on the way to net zero by 2050. And it is, you know, if you look at what's required to achieve net zero, it's really hard to imagine any country achieving that without implementing by 2030 quite steep, you know, on the order of 40 to 50 percent reductions. So, yes, the U.S. has done that. U.S. envoys visiting Australia have commented that they expect Australia to reach a similar level of commitment in 2030, but clearly the Prime Minister, even though he thinks Australia can do better, guessing his negotiations within the coalition government with the national parties, has not been able to deliver that. Can I just point to something else about the Australian announcement yesterday, which was that there didn't really seem to be a roadmap. And of course, the hosts of COP have said, you've got to come to this meeting with a roadmap, with not just a commitment, but you've got to tell us how you're going to do it. And that's really important so that countries can align and cooperate on targets and means to get there. i just point out also, there was a news report today that in Senate Estimates Committee, the Treasury Secretary admitted to the, the committee that Treasury's done no modelling on the climate impacts to the Australian economy at all in the last decade. What do you make of that? Well, it's surprising on one level because the impacts are becoming more and more obvious. It's not surprising in the sense that the politics of this issue in in this government make it difficult for any bureaucracy, really, I think, to focus on climate impacts. Hopefully with the Prime Minister's 2050 announcement, there'll be more latitude within the bureaucracies to explore these issues. However, just yesterday, the Australian Business Roundtable for Disaster Resilience issued a report that actually did do some analysis on the impacts of these disasters, just the proximate impacts of the disasters. And they've said that the cost to the Australian economy will be over $90 billion by 2060, $90 billion annually, just from the proximate impacts of disasters, not all those cascading impacts that will flow from those disasters. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, huge escalating costs. But, yeah, as usual on these issues, more of the interesting work is happening outside of government than in. And I guess it does mean for the Australian government for the public service, there's actually a lot of ground to make up quite quickly in the next 12 months, two years. 
Yeah, a lot of work to do. And, you know, we've talked before about the role governments have to play both, of course, in the Paris Agreement, but more generally in accelerating the transition, given the risks of climate change, accelerating the transition to renewables. But actually, you know, I think a lot of the ambition and excitement and the energy for change is happening outside of governments. It's simply the plummeting costs of renewables and storage, energy storage technologies. So this energy transformation is just, I think, going to accelerate faster than people realize today. And between that energy transformation and the role of asset managers and venture capital firms also moving in this direction, I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll be surprised at how rapidly the reductions begin kicking in. And I guess that underscores the point that I just made before, is that we might not be very prepared for that rapid transition as well. So that's really something for Australia to think very hard about post-COP. It's something I know you've thought a lot about, including the (laughs) geopolitics of the energy transformation and the energy implications. Just focusing on the energy transformation in our region, countries like Indonesia that rely on fossil fuels and fossil fuel exports, how that transition affects Indonesia's role in the region, how it affects a whole range of dynamics on that front. Yeah, I know that's something that is an underappreciated topic globally, in fact. Even, as you know, the U.S. has just released some climate and security risk assessments. And even in these risk assessments that were implemented across all of the agencies, the major agencies involved in the climate and security issues, really underplayed the geopolitics of this issue. Yes, it it is true. It's an odd feature of these assessments and often sometimes government government to government debates, but you can understand why. I mean, in a sense, there was also this week some leaked UN documents which kind of looked at how various fossil fuel producers, again, China, Brazil, Russia, Australia, uh, Saudi Arabia, tried to lobby for things like leaving in coal and fossil fuels and emphasising carbon capture and storage technology that would allow fossil fuels still to be burnt in theory while reducing emissions. That was one thing. The other thing they also tried to do was actually remove any references in the documents to lobbying itself. So I think that's pretty illustrative. Yeah, it's not surprising to me that our negotiators, because Australia, as you know, was also featured in those leaked documents, but it's not surprising that our negotiators were doing their level best to represent understanding of government policy and probably their inference of that as well in these discussions. And there is, throughout these processes, as you know, and previous IPCC reports, politics definitely intercedes in the, particularly in the executive summary that goes to policymakers. Often, The most interesting thing about those reports is to compare what's in the executive summary to what is in the heart of the document, often buried in technical analyses. There's often quite a big gap. Yes. So shall we talk a little bit about those US intelligence assessments on climate? I mean, they really are the first of their kind. Yeah. So I think there have been sort of informal assessments done, and they featured in previous national intelligence estimates, but usually as a small paragraph in a larger document that just says climate has some implications for the U.S.'s security interests. And the issue has been discussed in National Security Council. But this is really the first approach like this that I've seen across the U.S. government, where each agency is now doing its own risk assessment and where the president in particular has wanted to focus on the climate and security dimensions. 
on the one hand, they're really impressive documents. On the other, it's really startling what they don't talk about. As we mentioned the geopolitics, but I know there are many other things that were kind of absent in the consideration. They tended to focus on the immediate impacts of extreme weather events rather than how those things will impact a broad range of other interests. I think that was one of the striking things. The other striking impression that I got from those documents is the assessment that developed countries are going to feel experience some pain, but nonetheless, they'll be okay. And it's developing countries that will feel the worst. I don't have a problem with that per se. I think, yes, you know, poorer countries will have a harder time dealing with climate change. That's obvious. But I think what what COVID has shown us is that political risk is a big factor here. So you might have expected, for example, the US to have, you know, the biggest and best response to COVID, but it had a lot of political risk in its system that meant that it did not respond And it has one of the worst records on COVID around the world in terms of numbers of death and and hospitalizations and cost to the economy and all of these kinds of things. I mean, do you think that these intelligence estimates really, again, overestimate the ability of some developed countries to really cope politically with climate change? I am absolutely certain of that. We've already seen evidence of how that could unfold in the Syrian civil war, where extreme climate events over many years led to big population movements in Syria that were a contributing factor in the civil war that then caused a refugee crisis across Europe that contributed to the UK's withdrawal from the EU. And so these, and this is very early, these are relatively modest climate impacts contributing to these cascading events. I'm certain that as the climate warms, those political risks, those hidden risks will begin appearing. And it's a shame that these risk assessments didn't pick up on that. Yeah, just to elaborate on that particular point, I think the National Intelligence Assessment made reference to a UK defence document that modelled in some way a two to four degree climate rise that was very, very pessimistic about the ability of the world to keep temperatures below two degrees. And in that assessment, it seemed that their biggest worry was resource competition in the Arctic. And they kind of posited that, you know, military forces would be very busy up there uh, safeguarding UK interests. And it's interesting to think that that was what they were worried about. They weren't saying UK defence forces will be involved in lots and lots of HADR missions, both domestically and in the region. They didn't say that they'll be involved in political stabilisation missions. Yeah, so that I think, again, really illustrative of where military's heads are probably still at. Well, I think that will change quickly. And I'm hoping that this COP that will be starting at the end of October, end of this month, is going to add some impetus to that both by highlighting the increasing number of countries that have committed to net zero by 2050 and hopefully increased ambition from a large number of countries on net zero by 2030. And we shouldn't forget the developed countries' commitment to provide $100 billion a year of funding to less developed countries to help them adapt to these climate impacts and to make the transition to renewables. So let's hope that it's a positive outcome. Let's hope so indeed. And we'll be back with another pod to round up what actually happened at the COP. Thanks, Anastasia. All right. Thanks, Robert. Recently, Australian authorities seized a record 450 kilogram heroin shipment, the largest shipment of its kind ever detected in Australia. Dr. John Coyne and Dr. Tegan Westendorf discussed the significance of this seizure and consider whether a seizure of this size results in less available product and less consumption. 
Great to chat to you today, John. How are you doing? Hi, Jake. Good, thanks. So we're talking today about the recent, frankly, huge seizure of 450 kilograms of heroin that was imported into Melbourne in late September. And I might just kick off with, like I said, this is really huge. And for context, in the last decade, only twice before has an entire annual total of seizures topped 400 kilos in a year, with the second biggest one being in 2013, that was 500 kilos. So this is massive for an entire year, let alone a single seizure. And I'm sure we can agree that if we're running a smart business, you wouldn't send your entire stock in one shipment in one year. No, look, that's right. I, look, you know, to put it even more broadly, though, what we're seeing across the region, and I would talk about the this is a regional issue, really, I think. And that is that we're seeing massive increases. So, for instance, Thailand, for the last three or four years, year on year, just keeps on having record seizures of both methamphetamine, of the cheaper version of methamphetamine, which is Yava, of heroin, and they just keep on finding this stuff. So it is really, really interesting what that means for production and what it means longer term, I guess, for that model we have in our back of our mind, which is uh, the more we seize, the prices go down, therefore people will pay more for drugs, so therefore they'll give it up, therefore you know, it's a positive social outcome. I'm not sure that model is sustained in this. Yeah, I'm really similarly concerned, and this told me two things as well, the first of which is that the interruptions to global supply chains that were experienced during COVID are well and truly over. And we can see that in comparison to last year, where we should say that it's likely that it was interrupted. There's been a 265% increase on last year's seizures, and that's with nine months to go in this financial year. And then if we look back at the last year that wasn't affected by COVID, this seizure alone, it represents still a 160% increase on the FY19 total. So it really begs the question of if we're seizing more is less making it to the streets. And that's really key for, you know, what success looks like to police. What I find interesting though, and this is, there's a couple of data points here. So first off, because of COVID, the Australian Border Force and the Australian Federal Police had the opportunity to redirect a lot of operational staff away from airports and interport facilities, mail exchanges. So Arguably, whilst the amount of mail increased really dramatically, so every day is the equivalent of a Christmas holiday period for Australian Post at the moment, there were more ABF officers and more AFP officers to detect importations at those points of entry than ever before. The other point, though, is, is that, you know, we talk about disruption, but if we look at the wastewater survey over the last couple of, last, say, two, three years since it's been operating, there's not clear evidence that the supply was disrupted at all. In fact, if we look at the stats for usage for methamphetamine, as an example, and indeed heroin, what we see is in both capital cities and in regional areas, an increase in use of those drugs between August and December last year. So uh, I think this is the really interesting part about this. The data is really pointing to some holes in how we think about supply. I couldn't agree more. And in looking at the data of seizures versus consumption in Australia of heroin over the last four years, some really interesting insights are there for us. So comparing FY17 to FY20, we can see that seizing less doesn't necessarily translate to more being consumed. So for example, in 2019, more heroin was seized, but more was also consumed. And in 2020, significantly less was seized. 
but only slightly more was consumed. So while border seizures are a really important part of combating the use and effects of heroin, I think it's really difficult to argue that there's a direct causal relationship between the quantity seized by police and the quantity that's used. And therefore, I really agree with you that what success looks like and the kind of metrics that police are held accountable to is perhaps something that we need to reframe or rethink. Yeah, and I think too, you know, heroin is an interesting, and its history is interesting. So there's a lot of mythology around the global heroin trade that's not. So for instance, you know, if we looked at the media coverage over the last couple of months as about the fall of Afghanistan, what you see is is people saying all of a sudden, you know, the Taliban are going to return to the production of heroin. We're going to see a global oversupply. In reality, what we see is something very different. It is very much culturally linked. So in Australia in the uh, 1990s and into the early 2000s, you know, we really, this country was racked by a heroin epidemic. For people old enough, they'll remember Bob Hawke uh, getting on TV crying because his daughter, so, you know, the, the prime minister's daughter was a heroin addict. And it was really showed that it crossed economic and social barriers in, in Australian society. A lot of really great work was done around communication. Uh, some great policing work about drying up the supply. And I think, you know, part of that was about a global supply chain drought that was back to original origin countries. But I think that in itself was was a very telling factor. Now, then usage really slipped off. So we were really successful in educating young people. And to put it in a really colloquial sense, people looked at, you know, I think most Australians understood that you couldn't be a recreational heroin user. And people saw the destructiveness of it and disengaged with the process. Now, if we look at across at North America, the story there was something very, very substantially different. So heroin really hadn't had a big hit off until the pharmaceutical companies were pushing medical practitioners to push pharmaceutical grade opioids on users. And then I'd lay it over that DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, then seeing it was a problem, reduced legitimate supply of synthetic opioids down by 25% over a single year. And we saw this massive uptake where people were dislodged from legally getting synthetic opioids to the illegal market. All of this gets really, really conflated in understanding the heroin story, but there can be no doubt. I think that what we're seeing is the beginning of evidence of a, of a return of heroin to Australian society. And these sorts of big imports definitely sort of point to the fact that at least from a supply perspective, it's being pushed into Australia. Absolutely. I think it's also interesting then if we look at the, you know, not significant, but genuinely steady increase of heroin in Australia that we know because of our really brilliant wastewater testing system and the reports that the ACIC puts out about that. So we're looking at an increase in heroin use. We're looking at steady, if fluctuating seizures. We've got reason to believe that greater quantities are being imported. And then if I come back to your point about the effect in terms of addiction, and I'm going to talk about overdose deaths here as a bit of a litmus test to see, to talk about how bad that is. You know, over the last decade, we've seen a really extraordinary increase in overdose deaths. So we're talking 200% increase over the last decade. And that suggests to me that the amount being seized by police not only doesn't necessarily translate into less available product on the street, but it suggests that the demand is actually not just steady, but increasing regardless of what police do, which I think brings us back to something we've often talked about, which is the real necessity to 
And I'm not trying to criticize what police are doing. It's a critical and really important part of this effort. But it looks to me like we are asking police to fix a problem that's just impossible to fix from a strictly policing perspective. I mean, there's a deep resonance with the population. You know, you find it in the UK, the US and Australia, amongst many other countries, which is, you know, people want community safety. So they very much view this, this point where nothing gives you more evidence that your government is fighting drugs than seeing a politician stand next to a police commissioner in front of a table with one tonne of drugs and two heavily armed black clad police officers. So it says, you know, we're doing something. It's much harder to sit there and argue that, you know, the needle exchange or that the safe injecting room that's supervised and seeing, you know, thousands of overdoses and no deaths is making the same contribution. I think this is where, you know, there has to be a change in the way we consider the issue and what success looks like. Because at the moment, I'm a huge fan of law enforcement. And I say this, you know, year on year, the number of seizures, the amount of drugs seized, the amount of illegal proceeds of crime seized, successful prosecutions, these key performance indicators are going through the roof. And law enforcement should be congratulated that the pursuit of the top end of town organised crime. But ultimately, where we see the big changes historically, like for instance, the global drought in the 2000 and late 2000s, early 2010s of ecstasy was a really good example of that. A global drought changed the user dynamics. But at the same time, that doesn't help if you're dislocating people to other types of drugs. Absolutely. Perhaps we can finish off talking about fentanyl then in terms of dislocating to other types of drugs. And the recently released UNODC World Drug Report has some really interesting and really worrying insights for us. So in terms of the US, they're talking about now a dual epidemic of fentanyl's use and heroin use with significantly more unintentional overdose deaths from fentanyl on account of it being a more volatile and potent drug. And if we look to Europe as well, we're seeing some incredible trends where in some countries, the heroin market has been entirely replaced with fentanyls and in others it's being matched. So in terms of what this means for Australia, where wastewater testing is telling us that there is an increasing trend of fentanyl's use. And if we look at that map of where it is most used, you know, to the untrained eye, which I'll probably call myself in terms of looking at imports, um, it looks like it's coming in via the East Coast, primarily into Sydney, and starting to pop up more in Melbourne and Hobart. And frankly, I find this terrifying because we have this extraordinary demand that is not only steady but increasing, an already significant upward trend in the OD deaths for heroin. And we're looking at a drug coming into Australia to satiate this demand that is, if anything, more volatile and more prone to killing people. Yeah, look, what's interesting about fentanyl and, and the other synthetic opioids is that I'm not always convinced in the Australian market that people seek them out. What we've seen in Canada and the US is, uh, so if you look at, because they're so potent, so instead of, if I have to bring in 100 kilos of heroin, I can get the same amount of hits and a kilo of fentanyl. There's a very rough maths, but, you know, if we think of it that way, it's a smaller amount for the same profit and I've got to hide it in less places. So because, you you know, it's a smaller amount to hide. It's harder to hide 100 kilos than it is to hide a kilo. Now, the problem here is, is what we're seeing in North America is 
people going off to buy oxycodone or off-brand oxycodone illegally, or they're going off to buy meth, or they're going off to buy heroin. What they're really buying is a synthetic opioid that's been mixed by drug dealers into a product. And that's where my real fear is. So if you think of it, what we're talking about here is a couple of young people thinking they're going to take ecstasy tablets as they line up to go to a music festival, when in reality what they're taking is something that's been laced with fentanyl. It really aids the smuggler and the drug dealer and, you know, there's a certain thought here, but, we, you know, don't these people care about their business? And I'm just not 100% sure that they always do. Like, they don't think of it as about returning customers and those sorts of issues. So my thing is, I think that the use of synthetic opioids as adulterants to or as replacements to other drugs is, is my real, real concern at the moment. And certainly, if we're looking to the Pennington Institute results, I think that's where we're really going to see them because you're going to see drug overdoses just go through the roof. Thanks so much for chatting today, John. That was really interesting. Thanks, Tegan. Earlier this month, a global outage left users unable to access Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp and Messenger for six to seven hours. Carly Winkler and Jocelyn Kang discussed the causes and impacts of the outage and the potential for such outages to impact critical infrastructure. Hi, Jocelyn. So last week, Facebook had an outage that took down Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp and their internal networks globally. Let's talk about what happened and why this matters. Sounds good. So large enterprise organisations on the internet, like Facebook, are actually made up of an interconnection of many networks. What happened in this case was that during a routine maintenance task, a command was issued that inadvertently took down Facebook's backbone network, so their core network. Usually this kind of command would have been caught by an audit system and blocked, but there was a bug in the audit tool and it let this one through. This effectively disconnected Facebook's data centres from the rest of the internet. And this had some flow-on effects. It stopped Facebook's DNS servers from telling people where their data centres are, and it stopped BGP advertisements telling people how to find them, including Facebook's engineers trying to fix the problem. Okay, so let's take a quick detour to cover some terminology here. So domain name service, or DNS, is basically the phone book of the internet. It provides your IP address so that people or machines can find you. And Border Gateway Protocol, or BGP, tells you how to get there. It's like the route planner in Google Maps, which shows you how to get from town to town. On the internet, those towns are called autonomous systems, while avoiding all the things like traffic congestion and roadworks, etc. Right. Facebook's network is an autonomous system. Think of it like a satellite city. So what happened is that the route and directions to the city of Facebook disappeared from the internet's map and route guidance system. But the city is still physically there. So getting back to the story, normally Facebook's engineers can go through their internal network to fix the problem or use the internet to get to Facebook's network to fix the problem. But without a means to access the network online, the engineers had to turn up in person at the data centers, which quite rightly are guarded with high physical security. I did read somewhere that access to the data centers was delayed because the engineer's employee access cards was affected by the outage as well. Anyway, when they finally got in and could fix the problem, there were further delays because you can't just bring everything back up all at once. Instead, they had to bring the networks back up slowly, else risk overwhelming the systems and taking everything back down again. So there were two real problems with what happened here. First, a number of their fail-safes didn't work. Someone made a mistake and it coincided with a bug 
which let the networks get taken down in the first place. And that was unfortunate. The tools the engineers were using to diagnose and fix the problems depended on a live internet connection, which wasn't there. And physical security took time to overcome, even with the emergency procedures to let them all in. Um, physical security is usually a good thing, but anyway. The second problem was with our expectations of service. We expect big, rich companies like Facebook to be online 24-7 and invulnerable, and they aren't. There is a significant cost to being big. It isn't straightforward to bring something back that spans the entire globe. True. Let's get to why this matters. Networks and online infrastructure go down all the time. This isn't new or surprising. And an outage for any online company would be costly, right? So why is Facebook going down such a big deal? Right. Well, because Facebook didn't bear that cost alone. They're big partly because they do a lot more than allow people to look at pictures of cats and post about how great their day was. Thousands of companies operate exclusively on Facebook, selling their products and their services via the marketplace and tailored advertising. Lots of people get their news, their information, even their calendar events there, sometimes exclusively. Facebook has bought up a lot of other companies. So many, in fact, that the Federal Trade Commission in the US tried to sue them for antitrust, buying up all their competitors and becoming a monopoly. Facebook also provides security and single sign-on services for yet more online businesses and services. This means they centralise and control the ability for people to log into a wide range of other services beyond Facebook using their Facebook credentials. Google provides the same service, but at a larger scale. But that means that when things go down, the fallout is wide. Now, we don't really know how far Facebook's reach stretches, but I'd suggest that the Trade Commission was worried about the wrong thing. It's not the monopoly on competition that's the problem. It's the monopoly on infrastructure. So because of the fact that Facebook has a ridiculous amount of information on us, and because Facebook credentials can get you into a lot of other things, it was super important to make sure this wasn't a malicious attack. You make good points there, Carly. Who owns infrastructure is important. These massive online platforms have created their own infrastructure that the wider internet also depends on. For example, in this case, non-Facebook-owned businesses using Facebook services, like their single sign-on, are also vulnerable to Facebook's problems. Also, what we use and, in effect, who we trust on the internet matters. It matters when large online platforms go offline because a lot of people rely on their services and they host a lot of private data. These days, through a single ecosystem, it's possible to talk to friends, read the news, send our locations to our mums, run a business, pay for groceries, watch videos, book travel, and meet strangers. You can conduct a lot of your life on one platform. That's a lot of data about you across a lot of domains. Right. So people tend to look at what they post on the internet as individual facts and figure that because none of those things are particularly secret, it's not a big deal. They don't think about how what they share over time builds up a picture and a pattern of their behaviour. And they really don't think about the fact that when millions of people do this, that aggregated information is far greater than the sum of their parts. It allows you to infer all sorts of sensitive things about users their lives, and everyone they know, even those people who aren't on Facebook. So privacy is not an individual problem. 
So how would we sum this up? Do you think this outage was a big deal? For those people who use Facebook and Instagram for cat pictures, no. And if this was any other obscure US tech company, it wouldn't get this much attention. What this incident highlighted is that what we trust on the internet matters. A lot of us don't necessarily know what we're putting that trust in. And when we use online platforms, in particular ones we're not paying for, we're essentially handing over control of our communications, data, and our businesses to someone else for that convenience. What about all the uproar about the outage, Carly? Do you think that was justified? Well, yeah. I mean, if it was a malicious attack, it would have been really bad because of the treasure trove of information Facebook holds and the extent of their reach. Until we figured out that that wasn't the case, that this was just a series of mistakes, that scrutiny was valid. Stolen credentials are the major cause of data breaches, identity theft, and other online crime. That's why multi-factor authentication is so important to online security these days. I actually think Facebook did okay here. Let's face it, it wasn't even the worst thing that happened to them last week. They made a mistake, but they recovered fairly quickly given their size. And they have a huge target on their backs for cybersecurity attacks given the potential value of what they hold. So they've had to invest heavily in security, and mostly that's held up. However, there is a responsibility here on the rest of us to understand what the risks are of depending entirely on one thing, however convenient it is. And also what the impact is of our private data being exploited for profit. That's a wrap on this episode. This week you heard conversations with Anastasia Kapetis, National Security Editor of The Strategist, and Dr. Robert Glasser, Head of ASPE's Climate and Security Policy Centre. Dr. Tegan Westendorf, Analyst with ASPE's Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement Program, and Dr. John Coyne, Head of the Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement Program, and Jocelyn Kang, Program Manager and Technical Specialist with ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, and Carly Winkler, Senior Analyst with ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.